This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, the founder of Innovative CX Solutions, a past chairperson of the CXPA, and a practitioner with many years of transforming global operations and designing better customer experiences. Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. I'm Bob Asman, your host, and I'm glad to have you back to uh, the podcast to listen to some more great information from our guests around the topic of experience management, customer experience, and employee experience. Today, I've got Matt Watkinson with me today. He's an author and leader in the customer experience field, and we'll talk a lot more about that. But Matt, if you would, uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you so much. Yeah, my name's Matt Watkinson. I uh best known, I suppose, as a as a writer, having written three books now, The Ten Principles Behind Great Customer Experiences. That's my first book, which is 10 years old now. It's gone pretty quick. Um, the Grid, which is a systems thinking uh, tool for decision makers, came out in 2017. And book three, Mastering Uncertainty, which has just come out um, a couple months ago uh, in the US uh, and well, worldwide, actually, uh, certainly in the English-speaking world. Um, I have been in and around interaction design or customer experience um, since I began my career. So that's, yeah, I'd say it's a solid 18, 19 years by now uh, of working in this field of, of design and thinking a lot about customer experiences and particularly interaction design. I run a um, design agency uh, and and consulting practice that's based out of California with um, clients and people who work for us kind of dotted, strewn around the globe. Uh, Not a lot in Asia, mostly Europe, America and uh, New Zealand. So that's a brief introduction for you. Excellent, Matt. Thank you and welcome. So, Matt, how did you initially get into this? You said your career spans 18 some years. How did you get into this uh, whole field of design and experiences? Yeah, I um, I taught myself some web design in my first year at university. I was just very interested in, in it and curious about it. Um, through a connection of mine, I was able to get a job while I was at university working for a small design agency that had just been set up by a guy who'd left big agency in London. Uh, and he kind of took me on and uh, through my relationship with him and him starting his business, I was kind of exposed to all of the different facets of what it takes to design and build a website. I did a little bit of coding, a little bit of design, a little bit of kind of project management, a little bit of everything so I got to see how the whole thing worked, which was really a, an advantage that I think has stood me in, in, in really good stead. But it just became obvious to me around that time that 
the nature of the of the medium was such that usability and interaction design was going to be absolutely paramount. So I decided to try and specialize in in user experience design for websites and and software. You know, around that time as a I guess how old would I have been? Twenty year old. You know, I wasn't asking for a PlayStation or whatever for Christmas from my parents. I was just <laughs> asking for books on UX and UI design. And I was like just consuming anything and everything that I could on that on that topic. Um and I was fortunate that, you know, with the help of this mentor and studying everything I could and working as as hard as I could on that. Um, when I left university, I could go straight into a contracting role, designing these kinds of large scale transactional websites or enterprise software products, which I did for the first, uh, let's say, eight to 10 years of of, of my career. Um, it was just very obvious to me at that time that as the number of channels that customers were interacting with was proliferating companies certainly the the type of kind of large cap or blue chip brands that I was working for they would they would have to start thinking about how all these things fitted together like the challenge wasn't necessarily going to be how do we have a great website how do we have a great app how do we have a great kiosk how do we have a great showroom it'd be how can we start to join these things together into more cohesive and coherent end-to-end customer experiences Um, so that's why it was that realization along with a couple of other things that led me to write uh, my first book the 10 principles behind great customer experiences that came out I would say a year before that that industry really started to take off like a rocket like before it became the topic that everyone was talking about, customer experience, customer experience, customer experience. So I was just fortunate really to be in the right place at the right time uh, to write a book on it that did really well. It won Management Book of the Year in the UK when it came out. And um, it kind of gave me a, a front row seat to how the discipline would emerge over the last decade and you know meet a lot of fascinating people that, uh, and interesting people at conferences and events and be invited to into all sorts of organizations from you know Microsoft to the FBI to talk about these ideas and how they could be applied so yeah i was just very fortunate in that regard really mhm you know we could spend uh a lot of time talking about all your books because they're all pertinent to what we're talking about today and i do want to get to mastering uncertainty, but I do, (laughs) but I also want to talk to you for a minute about the grid Mm -hmm. um, and this whole concept of systems thinking, because I'm a strong advocate, both uh, as a practitioner of CX, but also as a, as a instructor at the um, college level in uh, supply chain and operations, service management, customer experience about the whole concept of systems thinking. Could you just give us a little insight into the grid and your your approach to systems thinking and what your what what's the thrust of that book? I think it'd be interesting for our listeners. Yeah, so the the it came about as a consequence of of, of two things: one in my professional life and one in my personal life. 
Um, in my professional life, after my first book came out, the nature of inquiries about my work changed. It wasn't, you know, we want you to design this app or oversee the design of this website or, you know, redesign this piece of software. It was more consultative in nature. People obviously having, you know, just assumed, I guess, that because I wrote about it, that I would be involved in the, the strategy and that that side of things, which really I, I I wasn't up to that time, and I honestly wasn't especially interested in. You know, I'm a I like to design and make things, um, and I quickly realized in a lot of those conversations that people made assumptions about what their problems or opportunities were without really getting into the the root cause of things, and and really it it, it could be anything. Like they didn't do a root cause analysis to find out what the real problems were. You know, for example, they would just assume that they should be investing in customer experience, whether it was a problem or not, frankly, you know, you might have a pro project problem, uh, sorry, a product problem or a pricing problem or an advertising problem. Yeah, but just because it was the hot topic, people were assuming that it's where they should put their investment without really putting much, much thought into it. Uh, also, people not really considering the second order effect of, of decisions, which is, you know, if we change this thing here, how does it affect that thing over there? You know, which is something that a lot of people in customer experience are dealing with all the time because people will change, I don't know, some piece of tech infrastructure in the company and all of a sudden it has a knock on impact to the customer that hasn't really been thought out. So that was where I realized that you know, perhaps the missing piece in the way that people made decisions was um, was to look at a business as an interconnected whole or as a, or as a system, which, you know, seemed to be the opposite of how people thought about it. They tended to look at it in this kind of reductionist manner. This coincided with an event in my personal life where I, I ended up having surgery on both my knees, um, which didn't solve the problem. Uh, and it was only when I uh, met this kind of ingenious physical therapist who explained to me that with body pain, uh, it's the victim that screams, not the perpetrator, was the expression that that I think she used. And that actually the, the cause of the problem was likely to be somewhere else, which was true. It was caused by these muscle imbalances in my in my hips and glutes, which were putting strain on the knee. So by you know, focusing on those with a with a rehab program, I was actually able to eliminate that pain and get back up and running. So I just started thinking about, well, how could we treat a business in the similar way to how that therapist treated my body? And what would that look like? And how could that work? And if we fast forward for five years, whatever it was after after the fact. And the result of that was this tool, the grid that shows all the factors that determine your success on a single page uh, and the book that goes with it that kind of explains how to think in systems and gives a primer on all these essential topics from, you know, wants and needs and adoption barriers and pricing through to fixed and variable costs, value propositions, um, means of being inimitable, acquisition, retention, or, or adaptability, all of that kind of stuff. So that's how the, the the grid came about. All my writing has just been 
really in response to the problem that I've observed immediately in front of me and thinking about how I could solve it. And that's how I, how I've approached it. Makes total sense. And I, and I think that's, in my opinion, the most effective way uh, to write a book because you're, you're dealing with a problem and you're addressing it and challenging the reader to understand it and to solve it. And I, I just think that makes a whole lot of sense in your approach. So Matt, thanks for walking me through the grid. I appreciate that. Um, talk to me a little bit about from your view, you just said you observe problems and you address them. Um, what, what do you think is the state of customer experience as we speak right now? Well, what I observe, and and it's very difficult to say whether my particular observations are are, are representative of a of a broader reality. Uh, that can be hard to say. So I, I wouldn't want to to claim that what I see is a fact. But I do spend, or historically have spent, an awful lot of time with. Um, with with um, the kind of senior executives in in large companies, the the C level executives, to try and understand their perspective on things, and I think, yeah, I I think the customer experience discipline is in a little bit of a pickle. My, myself, um, there are these perennial problems of trying to demonstrate the value of of the work. Um, particularly in terms of how it connects to commercial ambitions or or, or imperatives within within the organisation, and there are some some clear reasons in in my mind why why people are struggling with that. There seems to be real struggles to actually um, accomplish meaningful change in 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 organisations because typically customer experience teams can are in influencing roles rather than in direct ownership roles. You know, it tends to be that they're trying to inter, inter um sorry, influence individuals who are who have the budget, resource, and remit that actually affects the customer. And I think that often the way that they've gone about trying to do that has been a little heavy-handed or or hasn't been too too um effective and um and i think that there's been too much of a focus on kind of highfalutin strategizing and evangelizing and perhaps not enough on actually identifying real world problems that need fixing them and 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 just getting just getting on with it right um so yeah i think we've i see a lot of um these kind of open to work flags popping up on LinkedIn with people in CX teams. I see budgets being being cut as everyone is tightening their their belts. And I think that's fairly indicative of the fact that the, the discipline by and large hasn't delivered on the hype and hoopla that it that it ascended with. I, I'm tracking completely with you, Matt, along those lines where sometimes we just have to get on with it to your point and 
Uh, it is unfortunate. I'm seeing the same thing you are in terms of CX teams and belt tightening. And, and we certainly saw that in the pandemic, uh, initial elements of the pandemic, when a, a number of customer experience professionals were negatively impacted by the pandemic in terms of their employment and companies cutting back. So I think uh, I would concur with your observations that uh, in terms of the state of CX, I, th- I think they're very valid. Yeah, I mean, I think they've the, the two of the biggest culprits are are measuring the wrong things, I think, and putting faith in a in a chain of causal reasoning that isn't isn't correct, right? So just to ex- explain that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. The two most popular customer experience metrics by country mile would be the net promoter score and customer satisfaction CSAT, right? So mm-hmm. if we just take CSAT, what what is satisfaction a measure of if you if you stop and think about it, right? Satisfaction really is a reflection of the value that you feel that you got in comparison to the value that you expected to get, right? That that has to be true. Otherwise, we couldn't be satisfied with like a five-star resort and a cheap motel, right? So it has to be a function of expectations. And it also is a function of total value because let's think about what might influence your satisfaction. Um, the price would be one. The, the brand reputation would be another the specific features and functionality of, of the product, how easy it is to buy, what we say about our product in our advertising and, and communication, which of course sets that expectation, right? So what do we what what can we conclude from that? Well, it operates at the level of value and it operates at the level of expectation. And that means that literally anything could affect the customer's satisfaction. And the same could be said for their willingness to, to recommend something. Now, if you were to write a list of all of the factors that go into affecting that perception of, of, of value, and then you were to put ticks next to ones that the customer experience team controls, you'd probably be putting ticks next to none of them. And if you were to put half ticks next to things where the customer experience team has some kind of influence or impact, you'd maybe put half ticks next to a few things. So here we have an an, an entire discipline that has volunteered to be measured on something that is almost completely outside of their control, that doesn't allow them to tell effective stories and doesn't allow them to show cause and effect between the work that they're doing and the influence that they're having on this score. And, and then you have the second second order problem from that, which is in the real world, these things can vary completely out of, uh, in, in non-linear or non-correlated or non-causative ways with revenue. Satisfaction can go up and revenue can go down. Satisfaction can stay the same and revenue can go up. So, you know, 
everybody, like the people who have gone into the customer experience space going, we're going to measure either or both of these things, and that's going to be our North Star metric, find themselves in a position where they can't easily demonstrate how their work is affecting those scores. Those scores can go up or down for reasons that are completely outside of their control. And those scores may not have any relationship to the real commercial ambition of the organization anyway. And that, perhaps more than anything, is why when customer experience leaders go to petition their their leadership for funding, they're constantly asked, show me the value, and they can't do it. That's that's the underlying problem. The other underlying problem is this belief that like this this chain of causative reasoning that says customer experience is about satisfaction. Satisfaction increases loyalty, loyalty increases growth. Well, maybe sometimes that's true, but a lot of times that's not true. A lot of times, in fact, the biggest growth opportunity is to acquire more customers not to increase loyalty. A lot of the time, satisfaction has to decline in in many situations as market share increases because you start to serve a much broader spectrum of customers whose needs you can't perfectly meet, but you can adequately meet. So you actually often see a, a slight decline in satisfaction as brands grow their market share, right? So there's all this nuance and there's all this evidence-based, these evidence-based approaches to decision-making that are are just like inconvenient truths for for a lot of customer experience people who have just plowed on with this fixation on these basic metrics and this fixation on loyalty um, and, and retention. And now, you know, it's coming back to, to buy everyone on the bum, you know. No, Matt, I've, I've uh, interviewed a lot of people on this podcast and work with a lot of CX professionals. And I have to tell you that that explanation you just gave about what CX professionals are faced with is probably one of the best I've ever heard. And so uh-huh. spot on in terms of what CX professionals have to deal with. It just yeah, makes well, total sense. Thank, thank you. And and it's been a somewhat frustrating experience for me because I've been saying the same, largely the same message with in, increasing amounts of evidence to support it for the last six years. And it's somehow seen as a as a controversial perspective, but it's not. It's it's entirely <laughs> It's entirely logical. Like the the aim isn't to, the the aim of me talking about these things is to try and help people to have. Well, I mean, the aim of these things is to try and help people keep their jobs and thrive <laughs> and help their organisations to to succeed. You know, and it's it's it's. I wouldn't say it's like heartbreaking to see, but I. That might be a bit extreme, but I I believe in the mission. Like I believe that interaction design and the quality of the experiences that people have are hugely important. You know, we interact with what six hundred or so products a day, and then more services on top of that. If all of those things were designed 
or executed or serviced with the customer in mind, our overall quality of life would be much higher. And I, I fully subscribe to that and I fully, I fully believe that. But if you're pursuing the wrong strategic ambition, if you're not operating in a way that is commercially savvy, then you're going to come unglued. And, and there are so many things that people could do. Like they could say, okay, what, what are project-specific metrics that will help us demonstrate our value in this situation? Maybe we're going to reduce the number of complaints. Maybe we're going to deliver more orders on time in full. Maybe we're going to reduce the volume of non-order contact center traffic. It doesn't matter what it is, but you know those kinds of things, re- reducing number of returns, whatever it might be, those kinds of things allow you to tell a story and they have a dollar and cents amount attached to them. Yeah, that would make far more sense. It would also make far more sense for customer experience practitioners to acknowledge that their customer is the organization as well as the end customer and be saying to these other customer facing parts of the organization, what are you struggling with and how can we align with, with your challenges? How can we help you instead of this kind of attitude that i've i've seen in a few places which is like oh no 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 we're we're setting the vision and we're setting the you know whatever it is the the standards and you must adhere to them by the way we want your money to help us do our project (laughs) it's like it's so politically kind of um it's it's just not very smart like as, as an interaction paradigm you know, to, to to try and do that. And I think, again, you know, we're seeing the the consequences of that. P- people in customer experience, I think, what was driving the interest in this discipline in the beginning, if we go back 10 years ago, right? It wasn't a newfound love for the customer. It wasn't a moral... If we go back in, in, in time 10 years and we think about why... You know, why were companies suddenly very interested in this idea of customer experience? It wasn't really because of any kind of newfound love for their customers or uh, like a moral awakening about this kind of imperative to provide superior service. It was fear and greed, basically. The fear component of it was the arrival of social media and user-contributed content to the web meant that consumers had a much louder voice, right? If if they got, if they had a terrible experience with a brand or a product was no good, they could tell millions of people, you know, and that was going to rebalance the power dynamic between between the, the corporation and, and, and the customer. And so that was the fear part. The other fear part was in digital, every rival kind of seemingly just one click away. You know, so so that was the, the the fear component of it, and the greed component of it was seeing these these incredible digital channels that seem to offer amazing scale, lower cost to serve, and seeing halo companies like the Apples or Amazons of the world making you know, having tremendous commercial success as a consequence of 
mastering interaction design, ease of use, and this this kind of concept of customer obsession or of or of customer customer experience. What was driving it was wanting to make money. It wasn't and and I think customer experience practitioners, the discipline attracts people who are who are, I think, very well intentioned and very kind of virtuous people who believe who believe you know in for, in a kind of strictly moral sense that an ob- a company has an obligation to take care of its customers which which i would agree with and they believe that they believe in 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 the mission if you see what i mean they're idealists and somewhere along the way they lost sight i think of the fact that yeah, they may be that way, but their organization is is really interested in having less fear and making more money. <laughs> and and they didn't really align their messaging and their strategy and their working practice with what was actually driving interest in this thing in the first place. You know, and, and I feel like a lot of a lot of the difficulties that the, the, the discipline faces today stem from Stem from a sort of naivety, for want of a, of a better word, you know, which is what, uh, which is why we see so much evangelism, you know, and and people in sales team going around telling the rest of the organisation about how fantastic this stuff is, you know, I, I and and they get heard, and you know, people nod and clap, but then it's back to business as usual because that's not what's motivating the leadership of the company. You know exactly. Uh, I mean, again, I think you're spot on in that in that description of how we've evolved over time into the experience field. Matt, this has been really a fascinating conversation, but I don't want us to conclude our podcast without talking about mastering uncertainty, which, to some extent, kind of talk, kind of goes to what we've been talking about. So share with us about the book and some of the elements in it to entice our listeners to, to take a look at the, at, at your latest book. Oh yeah. Thank you. Well, um, Mastering Uncertainty came about from a, a personal realization of mine that, that again, you know, as with everything in my life was brought about with the help of a tremendous mentor and uh, who who provide a lot of inspiration for me? Who's my my co-author Chava Conkoy. Um and this realization that you know he helped me towards that. If you were to stop and think about it for a second, you would realize that your relationship with uncertainty has a profound impact on just about every aspect of your of your life and certainly your professional life. Right. So whether, for example, you consider things failures or learning opportunities uh, is a function of your relationship with uncertainty whether how you go about trying to innovate or improve things uh, is shaped by your relationship with uncertainty whether you have the courage to try and launch something your own business is a function of your relationship with uncertainty your leadership style your management style the behaviors you incentivize and reward all of these things are in a 
in a pretty profound way shaped by our relationship with uncertainty. And a lot of people have a very negative relationship with uncertainty. And a lot of people underestimate the extent of uncertainty in the market or out there in the messy real world where, you know, most of what happens is beyond our control and many, many things can can change un- unpredictably, right? So as a consequence, they put a lot of faith in intellectual desk-based activities, strategizing, planning, gathering ever more data and analyzing it. And they kind of put less and less focus or emphasis on actually trying things right and 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 seeing what works so like one of the most powerful ideas in in the book is the idea that genuine innovation and a knowable return on investment are mutually exclusive right you can only pick one and the reason for that is that innovation is a step into the unknown and you can't possibly know ahead of time what the payoff of a decision will be so this is why expert entrepreneurs use a different concept. They don't think in terms of return on investment. They think in terms of affordable loss. Uh, how much How much would I be willing to spend to see whether this idea works? That's not going to affect me in any kind of real kind of material sense. And, you know, hence it's affordable loss, not just lost. And we found that even, you know, with customer experience programs even, Getting people into a mindset of running small scale experiments based on affordable loss completely changes the conversation. It changes people away from being defensive if things aren't working out to being curious, to being open minded, to being willingness to change, to being willing to change their plans. And, you know, somewhat ironically, it gives them much better financial guardrails for their projects as well that actually mean that they they're increasing the odds of success and more likely to to be able to show some kind of positive payoff for those uh, investments. So to just kind of briefly zoom out again, Mastering Uncertainty takes you on a tour through how to turn uncertainty to your advantage. It starts off by explaining why it is that the world is more unpredictable than we think, why it is that most business philosophies and working practices don't really acknowledge that then it talks about the importance of your mindset and how you can cultivate um, a more enlightened approach to uncertainty including uh, overcoming fear of failure which is a, a big problem for a lot of people it talks about how you build social capital which kind of precedes building financial capital in most situations about relationship management is hugely important and the importance of being a host in life not a guest it talks about sales technique, which is huge because we're all selling all of the time. And if we're going to convert opportunities into outcomes, that's a, a major step. And then it talks specifically about organizations, most specifically about how, you, like there's a chapter on starting, there's a chapter on growing, and there's a chapter on managing organizations based on on this uh, enlightened approach to um to uncertainty. So that's what the book is about. It really sounds like a lot of things that as CX professionals we can 
use to apply within experience management and what we're trying to do? Well, I hope so. I mean, it had a, um, I learned a lot through researching and writing it. I, I don't think I'm the same person as I was before. And, you know, feedback from readers has generally been very positive that it's, it has helped them uh, f- for the better. So, yeah, I, I think it has a really broad application, not just within customer experience, but anyone who is, you know, in the world of work, I think can benefit from 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 these concepts. And, and they many of them also work in, in your personal life as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it and, uh, and I'm really happy with with the feedback and it's just been a tremendously fulfilling experience. That's great to hear. And Matt, before we conclude the podcast, I always ask our guests any final words of wisdom for our listeners from your perspective and your research and your experiences. This has been an outstanding conversation and I would just be curious as to what final thoughts you might have to share with our listeners. I think my, my, well, what can I say? I think my final thought would be that it's just a kind of, I guess, a piece of life advice that I I learned from researching Mastering Uncertainty that's really helped me. And I think it could help a lot of people, which is the most important question to ask yourself in most situations is what's my downside? So the way that most of us are encouraged to think about things is to set like a smart goal, you know, uh, where we identify what we, what we want to accomplish. And then we try and plot a path towards it. And along the way, we, we make sure that these things are very realistic and, and achievable and we have a solid strategy and everything. But the problem with that is that because the world is innately probabilistic, Often we can't know what the outcome of a course of action will be. Right? So let's say there's some, let's just use a facetious example. Let's say there's some beautiful woman and you'd like to take them out for dinner. Before you ask them, you can't know whether they're going to say yes or no. So it, it, if what you're trying to do is guarantee an, an outcome, you're probably not going to ask until you're you're certain, right? But if you reframe this in terms of what's my downside, you can say, well, if I don't ask, the answer is definitely no, <laughs> right? Which mm-hmm. is which is obviously true. And if I do ask, they might say yes. Now the I'm same saying- is true with just about everything in life, right? I can't know what the consequence of recording this podcast will be. It could be nothing. It could be that, <laughs> pardon me, um, we sell a couple of books. It could be that somebody gets in touch with me about a, a project. I can't know what the outcome will be, but I do know that if I don't record the podcast, nothing will happen. Right. So the same extends into corporate decision-making as well, where if you can decouple your mentality from what's the upside and how do I guarantee it through to does this seem interesting and what's our downside? It's kind of like removing a set of blinkers and it exposes you to exponentially more potential opportunities in life, 
um, in work, for innovation, for, for trying things out. And it frees you basically psychologically from having to know what the outcome is going to be. It frees you from the paralysis that comes with wanting certainty and exposes you to a world of potential that otherwise is, is invisible to you. So many times in the last few years, just by asking, what's my downside? Okay, I'll try it. Like things have worked out so much better for me. Because if you don't ask, you don't get, right? And if you don't, you know, there are so many expressions that make the same point. I I miss every shot that I don't take. You know, you can't win the lottery without buying a ticket. All of these things are basically making the same point that you should focus more on your downside. And if it's acceptable to you, and the likely consequences are very minimal, you should just get on with it. And that's actually tremendously liberating. So that's helped me a lot, and I, I hope it will help other people too. Excellent words of wisdom, Matt. Uh, appreciate that and appreciate uh, your comments throughout our podcast. Matt, how is it best uh, if listeners want to learn more? Obviously, they can buy your book, but also how might they get in touch with you? Um, yeah, uh, either LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find on there. It's just Matt Watkinson. Uh, I have a website. It's matt-watkinson.com. And um, yeah, all the, the the three books are all available on in the usual places, Amazon or yeah. In um, so yeah, how, however people want to to get in touch with me. Excellent. Well, we certainly appreciate Matt joining us on today's podcast, and I would encourage our listeners to definitely check out uh, his latest book, Mastering Uncertainty, as well as his two previous books. Um, the grid and the 10 principles behind great customer experience. Matt, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. And, thank you so and, much. And this has been another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. As always, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your network and stay tuned for future podcasts as part of this station, CX of M Radio and Innovative CX Solutions. Thank you, listeners. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Considered CX. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Subscribe to our show, follow me on LinkedIn, and visit my website at InnovativeCX.com for more insights on creating better experiences. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit CXofM.org for more resources.